So, you're in here. We are continuing on our study of the church. But let's uh, begin by talking about Linda Wozniak's house. <laughs> so I got to paint Linda's house. It's been, like, I think, actually three years now, maybe even four. And uh, the most terrible part of painting Linda's house was uh, scraping the south side of it. There was an incredibly large amount of failing paint. This was not, not Linda's fault. I'm not complaining, <laughs> Linda. Uh, but it, it was almost an entire day's worth of scraping. Most of that up on a ladder. It's very unpleasant work. Like, paint chips are getting all over you, and you're just like, as soon as you find one little piece that you think you've got it, you find another flake. And as, so here I am, up on a ladder, all day, scraping the side of the house. I listened to all the, getting sick of the podcasts I was listening to. I was done listening to the audiobook that I'd been listening to. And looking, uh, what do you know? Some Mormon missionaries walk up to Linda's door. And I knew she wasn't home, so I call, called around the corner and said, Hey guys, come over here. And I said, she's not home. And they come over, and in their typical Mormon fashion, they ask me, um, is there anything we can help with? <laughs> and, and I did not say that you could help me scrape, because that would have been illegal. Um, but I did say, well, there's nothing that way that you can help me, but I am very bored, so can you hang out around for a while and talk to me? And so that's what we did, and I think I had a captive audience for about an hour. Well, what's this have to do with anything? Well, as we got talking, they asked me questions. I, I was pretty forthright with where I am. I said I'm an evangelical Protestant. I'm an elder in a Presbyterian church. And they asked me, well, what's that mean to be an elder? And I said, well, it means what the Bible says to, uh, to be an elder. Because those of you who are familiar with Mormons know that they dub all of their missionaries, uh, male and female, elders. Do they call the girls elders, too? Anybody know? No? Are they sister? All the boy elders. Yeah, I mean, but they're like 19-year-old boys out on the mission field, and they all get called elder. So we talked about that, and before you know we got talking about the question, where does one find the true church? And in their mind, the true church is very much found, identified with a person who has the authority to say, this is the church. And for them, that is the prophet. They, Joseph Smith was the prophet who essentially reestablished the Church of Christ, which essentially had failed, had disappeared from the earth after the first century to be reestablished by him. And since then, there's been a succession of prophets. And those prophets are the ones who determine what is the true church. And so in their mind, the identifying where is the true church is very much tied up with a person who gets to declare this is and this isn't. And so they asked me, so how do you identify a true church? And so, uh, as I hope all of us would do, I said, let's open up the Bible. And I asked them to turn to Matthew 16. And I don't remember for sure if I asked them to actually open up and read it. Uh, but we did end up having a lengthy discussion about Matthew 16. And what Jesus says there. For those of you who are unfamiliar with the passage, that is the, the text where Jesus says... Uh, uh, blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. I say that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. So we had a conversation of what does the Bible say about what the church is. Now, I can't, I don't want to say that it was the best uh, discourse ever. I was up on a ladder, I was still scraping, and I was very much flying by the seat of my pants trying to figure out what to say about this text in defending the true uh, what is the church, and where does one find the true church? 
But it is that question which I would like us to, uh, to look into tonight, hopefully with more clarity than I was able to offer from the latter to these young Mormon boys. So the question being, where does one find the true church? And I believe that in this passage, uh, Matthew 16, verses 14 through 20, Jesus shows us that the church is an institution built upon men who have been entrusted with the gospel. That is, the church is an institution built upon men who have been entrusted with the gospel. And that's really what we're going to be looking at for about the next 15 or 20 minutes, that the church is an institution, that the church was built upon men, and that those were men who were, uh, had been uh, entrusted with the gospel. But let's begin by reading this entire passage. Let's go from, uh, again, it's Matthew chapter 16, and we will read from verse 14 through 20. Actually, let's drop back to verse 13. So when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that, say that I, the Son of Man, am? So they said, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And Jesus said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered and said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he commanded his disciples that they should tell no one that he was Jesus, the Christ. <clears throat> so I'm not going to be able to deal with every single detail of this text, but I do think that we can get the main outlines of where one finds the true church by seeing what Jesus has said here. And so let us begin with the basic idea that the church is an institution. This isn't a word that seems to be liked very much in our time. It feels um, cold, it feels impersonal. And after all, uh, Christianity is about a relationship, not a religion, right? As people say. Well, while it is absolutely true that there is a strong relational piece about Christianity, Christianity is a religion, and there are institutional aspects of it, especially when we are thinking of the church. And so you may ask me, well, what do you mean by institution? Well, most basically, I mean, it's actually a tangible, real thing. Uh, the dictionary defines an institution as merely an establishment, an established organization, especially of a public character. But what I really mean is, like, so Jesus is talking about this thing that is being built, and it has a definite shape and form. Just from this passage itself, we see that there are defined boundaries. Jesus said he's building his church upon this con confession that Peter has made, that, of, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then he's thought, he then goes on to talk about binding and loosing. So there is um, definite boundaries for who is in and who is out. Uh, the church, uh, as an institution, also has defined leadership. Jesus talks about Peter, on this rock I will build my church. So there is a defined leadership to this institution. And then there are defined rules as well. 
namely the Word of God, which uh, is the guidance for this thing called the church, this institution. But saying that the church is an institution really doesn't get us very far. There's lots of institutions. Banks are institutions. Schools are institutions. So what is the nature of this institution, the church? Well, the church is an institution built upon men. Now, youth group, I have to apologize at this point in time. Uh, Becca laughed quite hard when I told her this, and it was in that, ha you're wrong kind of laugh. Um, which was, last week I made a really big deal. My, my basic point about the church, and I, I shared that with them the Mormon story, and I basically, when I had talked with the Mormons, I had said that the church is identified with the confession that Peter made. Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that that is how one identifies the true church. And so when I was talking with the youth group last week, I said, and this is seen very clearly in verse 18, when Jesus says, I say to you that you are Peter on this rock. And I made a big point about the antecedent of the word this, that the antecedent of the word this was the confession that Peter had made. Did I lose anybody by talking about antecedents? Okay. Just for those of you, don't, don't raise your hand. Okay. Antecedent, so like a pronoun, like he, she, they, the antecedent is the thing that it refers back to. So when we have the word, um, uh, say, on this rock, what is the this referring to? I said it was referring back to Peter's confession. And that is only partly true. I eliminated Peter from the, the picture. I said it was to his confession, not to Peter. But it really is to Peter and his confession. And I can't take uh, personal credit for seeing that change in my thinking. It was upon reading commentaries on this passage and seeing virtually everybody included Peter as the antecedent to the this. Everybody from John Calvin, Matthew Henry, to more, uh, more contemporary commentaries like the ESV. So, uh, Peter is certainly included in this as the, um, as the rock upon which the church is built. And honestly, this shouldn't be that hard of an idea because the Apostle Paul says very clearly that the church is built on the foundation of the, the what? The apostles. The apostles and the prophets. But the church is built on the foundation of the apostles. The prophet. So it shouldn't be a controversial idea that the foundation of the church is the apostles, Peter being one of them. And so that's why we're saying that the church is an institution built on men. And it is these men who God uses as the builder. Notice, on you I will build. God is the primary one who is doing the work, but it is through his men that he has appointed to lay the groundwork for the church. And it is uh, specific individuals he is also appointed to lead and govern the church. But even this much by itself doesn't really get us that far. An institution uh, built upon men. It is the last piece that is the most crucial to this whole formulation. Men who are entrusted with the gospel. So, uh, what is the message that, that Peter has been entrusted with? What is it that uh, Peter has said, which Jesus has given him so much praise, and who Jesus has reminded him that this was not something that he saw because of his own genius, it's nothing that Peter saw because of his own insight, but because uh, his Father who is in heaven had revealed it to him. It was that confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. 
And I think that this statement is the gospel in a nutshell. Uh, there are lots of places in, in Scripture where we see a big idea that's been condensed into very few words. And you have to read that passage in the context of the entirety of Scripture to understand what is being said there. Specifically, it says, when you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. Where We have to look to Scripture to determine what is the Messiah, what is the Christ. And as we dig into that, we see uh, that, that, that the Christ is the one who would come to save. The Son of the Living God. What does it mean for this person to be the Son of the Living God? So there's a lot there to unpack. Here's what John Calvin said about this confession of Peter. He said, The confession is short, but it embraces all that is contained in our salvation. For the designation Christ, or anointed, includes both an everlasting kingdom and an everlasting priesthood to reconcile us to God. And by expiating our sins through his sacrifice to obtain for us a perfect righteousness and having received us under his protection to uphold and supply and enrich us with every description of blessings. So we see here Calvin slightly beginning to unpack how this short statement is really the gospel in a nutshell. And it is this statement, this confession, which then... Uh, makes Peter a representative figure of those whom uh, Christ would use, who God would use to establish and build his church. So, uh, Peter, though, though what we as Protestants are going to insist on is that it's not just Peter. Okay? Anybody have a problem with that? What, and you might be wondering, well, what side do you mean that it's not just Peter? Well, Roman Catholics teach that this passage is what is used to establish uh, Peter as the first pope, as the as the um, vicar of Christ, as the representative of Christ on the earth, as the head of the church. Okay. Both us and Catholics believe that there is one head of the church, which is Christ. The difference is, the Roman Catholics believe that Christ has appointed one person as his representative over the entire church as his head. When does that sound fairly accurate? Okay. Whereas we do not believe that there is one person who has been appointed as the head of the church. And that is definitely not what Jesus is doing here. In fact, I go so far as to say that Peter isn't even being singled out among the other apostles in any special way, but he, his confession is representative of what all of the apostles would confess. And I think that we see the centrality of the confession and the individual when we look at what Peter does next. How many already know what Peter does next? Okay, I see some smirks in here, and for those of you who aren't aware or don't ha haven't looked ahead and seen, it is right after this scene that we have that horribly awkward situation where Peter tries to rebuke Jesus. Jesus is talking about needing to die and go to the cross, and Peter's like, no, Jesus! And Jesus rebukes Peter, saying, get behind me, Satan. So we see the same man who Jesus had just said that he's going to build the church upon, also being rebuked and being called Satan. I think what we see here is that Peter loses his confession, 
then he loses his status as an apostle. That you cannot separate the confession with his status as an apostle who will build the church. So it is both. It is both Peter and the confession that must be, be used together. God is, you, did use men to establish the foundation of his church, but it was men who confessed Jesus as the Christ, who were entrusted with the gospel, and maintained fidelity to that gospel to establish his church. But not just Peter. It is uh, the, the, all of the apostles. And we see that as we look through the rest of the New Testament and see the apostles being used to establish the foundation of the church. Just a couple other points, though, for those who might want to see this as, as highlighting Peter. It's important to note that there is actually nothing in the text here directly that actually elevates Peter or places him in a specific position above the other apostles. There's certainly nothing else within throughout the New Testament that would indicate that Peter is in that has had has been given some elevated status or position. And in fact, if you read Peter's letters, specifically 2 Peter, which was wrote, written just before Peter dies, Peter actually acknowledges that he is near his death, and he doesn't appoint a successor. Well, you notice in 2 Peter, when Peter is talking about his coming death, does anybody know what he actually points the church back to? In 2 Peter chapter 1, in the final verses of that chapter, he points the people back to the word of God. He points the people back to the word of God as their sure foundation. So Peter's not given an elevated status among the apostles, but he is one of the men who God would then use to establish the church and to establish the foundation of it. And central to his identity as the one establishing the foundation of the church is the confession they made. So we see that the church is an institution built upon men entrusted with the gospel. So to return to the original question, where does one find the true church? Well, I think we can take from this. There are two crucial components to that. The first is the fidelity to the gospel message. You have no church without a gospel. But also, one finds the true church where there is fidelity to the foundation laid by the apostles. So as we read the New Testament, we see that there are crucial pieces to what the church is. There are leaders, there are elders, and there are deacons established in the church. There, is, um, there are certain standards of conduct about how the church is to operate. There are members, there is discipline, there is the right administration of the sacraments. So the, el the apostles in that first generation lay the foundation of what the church itself is to look like and how it is to operate, and it was them that God used to lay that foundation, which we are to look back at, which is recorded in the New Testament documents, to see what the church is to look like. So where does one find the true church? Where there is fidelity to the gospel message and fidelity to the foundation laid by the apostles. And both of these characteristics need a lot of unpacking. I spent the first half of the year, or really around New Year, unpacking the first, around the question, what is the gospel? And what I'm doing with the youth group right now is unpacking the second, essentially. What is the church? And we're looking at those characteristics which make the church the church. What, it, what does the New Testament say are the vital pieces of what a faithful church looks like? 
But for the rest of the tonight, I actually would like to zoom in on a specific question that emerges out of this whole idea is where does one find the true church and the characteristics, which is, is there salvation outside the church? But before we get to that, any questions? Okay. So the statement, outside the church, there is no salvation. I'm just curious if anybody has any first impressions on that statement that they want to share, and if you have a theology degree or if you've written any books, you're not allowed to answer. Okay. Anybody want to share a first impression on that statement, for better or for worse, outside of the church, there is no salvation? Linda. Well, I'll make a, a guess. I would say outside of Christ, there is no salvation. Okay. Less comfortable with outside the church, there is no salvation. That's fine. Okay. Um, this is just kind of an initial response, because with Catholic family members, they would absolutely agree with that statement. Um, but then I think that some of evangelicalism has like swung so far in the opposite way that they're like, well, we don't need a church to, to like to to say that we're saved, or we don't need to be part of a church to to find that salvation. It can just be me reading the Bible and I can find salvation. So I don't know. I kind of I feel like I see people on the two opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, that was actually really helpful, Katie, because that's exactly what I had in mind. And what, one thing I don't know, I don't know how many of you fall like more in that kind of over overreaction against the statement like this, or if this seems strange, or if never even thought about it. Okay, Wherever you fall, that's fine tonight. What I'm hoping to do is unpack this statement in the remaining 15 minutes that we have and see that there actually is a right way to understand that statement. And there's a wrong way to understand that statement. Um, it is, I think, commonly associated with the Roman Catholic Church or the Eastern Orthodox Church. I think these are very common, it's a very common idea, even a common statement. There's actually a Wikipedia page for the statement, outside the church there is no salvation. Although the Wikipedia page gets the, uh, the Latin title, Extra Ecclesium Nola Salutis. But I found that by Googling it, outside the church there's no salvation, not by knowing the Latin myself. But as much as this statement is associated with Roman Catholic churches, it's actually a statement that also has a history in Reformed churches. The Dutch Confessions, Heidelberg Catechism, the Belgic Confession have statements very similar to this, without much qualification. Our own confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith, says a similar thing, but with a little bit more qualified, stating in the 25th chapter, second paragraph, there is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside of the visible church. I'll read that one more time. There is no ordinary possibility of salvation outside the visible church. So this is saying more than that there is no such thing out of, um, than just that there is no salvation outside of Christ. Absolutely true that there's no salvation outside of Christ. But there is a sense in which we would understand that there is no salvation outside of of the visible church. So what is that? Well, let me begin, actually, by just briefly unpacking the Roman Catholic position as a point of contrast. Because this is not the position 
that we would hold to. The Roman Catholic position goes something like this. It would actually point back to the passage that we started with, which is why I see a connection here between these two things. That they say, uh, Peter is the foundation of the church. And as the foundation of the church, he was the first pope. And all, uh, all popes need to be able to point back to Peter, uh, to a line of succession that goes back to Peter as the foundation of the church. And if there is no pope, then there is no church. And it is the papal system, that is the system of the Pope, that uh, has authority to bind and loose um, souls on this world. And that's manifested in a variety of ways. Just four of them that came to mind from my general knowledge of Roman Catholicism would be the practice of auricular confession, which is that going to the confessional booth and actually uh, the requirement to actually confess your sins to a priest. Uh, the practice of indulgences, which, is, though not much spoken by, about by Roman Catholics in our time, is still on the books as a genuine uh, a point of doctrine. And if you've ever been around on Reformation Day, I'm sure you've heard plenty about indulgences and the whole indulgence system. <coughs> also, uh, flowing from this understanding of the Pope and the authority of the Pope is a uh, practice of absolution and the exclusive right to administer the sacraments. In other words, the traditional Catholic position, that's important, is that there's no, that no salvation outside the church means that there is no salvation apart from the papal system. That is, if you do not belong to the Roman Catholic Church, you cannot be saved. Now, this is interesting because I think a, lo a lot of people still think that this is the official position of the Roman Catholic Church. But in fact, the Roman Catholic Church has uh, softened this oh, oh, around Vatican II. Vatican II, a familiar phrase to many of you in here. Vatican II is when um, Catholic Church was in a little bit of a crisis, realizing that they were losing membership and they uh, well, there's a lot going on. But some things got reworked within the Catholic Church. And one of them was a softening of this position. So I actually looked up their catechism, what is their current stance on this position, and here's what the Roman Catholic Catechism says. That they could not be saved who, knowing that the Catholic Church was founded as necessary by God through Christ, would refuse either to enter it or remain in it. So what the, the softening comes by, they say it's not that like nobody outside the church can be saved, but if you know that the church is, what was the language they used? Uh, necessary by God through Christ. And you still choose to not join it, then there's no opportunity for salvation. So you see a little bit of softening of their position. They make a more exception to this idea to there being salvation outside of the church. Now in practice, a lot of Roman Catholics still hold to the older uh, position. And I'm not in Roman Catholic circles enough to know if that's coming from the pulpit, if it's coming from their classes, or if that's just kind of something that has been passed on more as an oral tradition. But the, the Roman Catholic Church has actually gone even further than this in softening it, in that they've adopted a doctrine called anonymous Christians. And their catechism does a fairly good job um, defining it. That's catechism question 847. Now, children, if you've ever thought that our catechism was long, if you've ever been tired by memorizing it, and I know uh, my daughters right now, they've been given some very lengthy sections of the catechism to memorize. 
just be glad that our catechism is not several hundred questions long. Question 847 says, um, this affirmation, the one I was just talking about, that there's no salvation outside the Christ, outside of the church, is not aimed at those who, through no fault of their own, do not know Christ in his church. For those who no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and, moved by grace, try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, those two may achieve eternal salvation. It's quite strange. They went from this very rigid and dogmatic position to something that sounds like it's near universalism. Uh, not quite universalism, because they're not saying everybody will save, but they have opened up the doors to people of other religions actually being saved by devotion to seeking God in a clear conscience through whatever general revelation they have. And so what we see here really are, are two twin errors, that neither of which we would accept. We're not going to accept this uh, kind of rigid dogmatism that says unless you're part of this specific church, you can't be saved. And we're not going to say, oh yeah, even, um, even uh, people belonging to other religions, if they seek God with a sincere heart, can be saved. Um, and I have some notes here. I'm, not, I'm going to skip it because of time, but C.S. Lewis actually taught anonymous Christianity as well. It appears in Mere Christianity, and it also appears in The Last Battle. Does anybody remember the conversation around the... What was the guy's name? He, he is a worshiper of Tosh. Anybody remember, anybody remember reading this? Okay. So I'm not going to read it right now, but my point is... Um, actually, I'm bringing that up. Is someone might say, well, okay, you're talking about Roman Catholicism, Andrew. Uh, what? I'm not tempted by Roman Catholicism. I'm pretty happy here. I like what we teach and what you teach. So why are you even bringing up this uh, Roman Catholic stuff. Well, first of all is, there are aspects of this which have appeared in evangelical circles. I think there are a fair amount of evangelicals who actually believe something similar to this doctrine of anonymous Christianity. I also think, though, uh, by contrasting our view with the Roman Catholic position, it helps us clarify our thinking. It helps us think about this uh, more, more clearly as we try to articulate our position in contrast with the Roman Catholic position. And to add to that, there's actually a staggering number of people leading evangelical and even reformed churches for Roman Catholic Church, uh, for Roman Catholic churches um, that's been going on for 10, 20, 30 years. I'm not sure, I haven't looked at the most recent numbers of those who are, um, who are leading the Evangelical Church for Roman Catholicism, but it's significant. I have at least a couple friends who've uh, fallen down that path. So, um, so this whole idea of anonymous Christianity is a popular sentiment among evangelicals, but we can't cave. Um, and just to give you one verse that kind of helps us see this, like. This idea of anonymous Christianity is not valid. Uh, in, in Romans 10, 15, 14 and 15, the Apostle Paul tells us, How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe on him who they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? 
As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. So we have to reject uh, the idea that there is this one particular church outside of which there's no salvation, but also the other position of anywhere. So what is our position? That there is a true sense in which there's no salvation outside of the church. And I think this is helpful when we break down the idea of salvation. I think a lot of us, when we first hear that word salvation, we think immediately of our justification. That is, our being uh, put in right standing before a righteous and holy God. And certainly that is central to our salvation. If we can't stand before God as righteous and holy, if we cannot be in his presence, we do not get to experience any of the other blessings as knowing God as our God. As we look at the Bible, as we look at theology, we look at our confession, we see that there are many aspects to salvation. There's regeneration, there's justification, there's sanctification, there's adoption, and there's glorification. And if we think about salvation and the church and each of these aspects of salvation, we see that we cannot separate salvation from the church. So regeneration and justification, I'm going to put them together because as we think about those two things, it is being saved from the guilt and the corruption of our sin. And why can't we separate this from the church? Well, because the church is the people who've been entrusted with the, God, with the message that people must believe in order to be regenerated and justified. It's important to note that God doesn't ordinarily save people through isolated Bible reading or track bombing. And in most cases I've heard of someone all on their own, just picking up a Bible, having never had a Christian friend, having never met a, a Christian, or someone finding a track that seems like vast majority, I don't know actually, personally I have a story where that person did not almost instantaneously have a Christian um, in God's good providence appear in their life. And so what we see is that God most typically uses the people of the church as the messengers of the gospel. And then in the situations that are the one, the rare occasion and someone happens to be reading material, God oftentimes brings people along in it. So we can't separate a regeneration and justification because it is the church who's been entrusted with the message. We also can't uh, separate the church from salvation when we think of salvation as sanctification. Because of the, that is saved from the ongoing power of sin in our life. Because it is the church that has been equipped with the ordinary means of grace, which help us to get greater freedom from our sin. Ordinary means of grace being the preached word, the sacraments, and prayer. It is also within the church that there is authority structure, which is meant to, uh, to um, lead and to guide God's people in their sanctification. And it's also within the church that we have fellowship with other believers. All three of these things being aspects of our sanctification, which God is in his good providence using to sanctify us, to save us from the ongoing power of sin. And lastly, if we, as we think about salvation in the church, there's also uh, adoption, which is another aspect of salvation. That is being saved into the family of God. How can one live a life of the body of Christ Christ, but not be tied to that body. Uh, 
to be saved is to be saved into God's family. So how can you say that you've been saved in this family which you never have a part of? Additionally, the New Testament never speaks of a Lone Ranger Christian. So we see that's just a glimpse into some of the things where the church cannot be separated from salvation. And what I wanted to do was end, I had three scenarios that I wanted to end with, and we're out of time, but I'm going to just really quickly give a snapshot of each of them instead of talking about them at length. Uh, for me, this whole idea of is there salvation apart from the church is a, uh, there's a personal aspect of it in that my grandfather was a professing believer. He was a faithful man in his church for many years, but in the final years of his life, he had distanced himself from his local church. Uh, that is, uh, he was a Pentecostal, and the music started getting too loud, and he found it very obnoxious to be a church. So rather than finding a church that didn't have the loud, obnoxious music, he just stopped going. So am I saying that my grandpa wasn't saved? No. But I am concerned about the place that my grandpa was in. I am concerned uh, you know, that he would have allowed himself to be separated. And I do think that he did put himself in a dangerous place in his final years. I think there are temptations with every season of life, and old age uh, and still has those as well. I mean, he put himself in a dangerous place um, for that. Another situation that's come up recently is I was doing some reading about um, membership in the church and what happens if a member just disappears uh, from attending church for an extended period of time. Should that person be excommunicated, or should that person be um, erased from the roles. And it turns out that Reformed churches traditionally practiced erasure from the roles. That they didn't go through the excommunication process, but that their name would just be taken off the books. But there was also a traditional understanding of the church and salvation that knew if someone did not identify with the visible church, that they were in a very dangerous place. So this idea of erasure had a certain freight to it that I think because of even what Katie was saying when I originally opened the questions, a lot of evangelicals thinking that you can just, you know, be a Lone Ranger Christian and no big deal. I think a few generations back that wasn't quite the same case. So being erased from the roles of a church was seen as a very significant deal. And the last point, like scenario, that I kind of wanted to run through this idea of salvation outside of the church is a conversation that I've had with too many young Christian ladies, which is, I met a guy. Great. Is he a Christian? It's the first question I ask. Yes, he is. Do you know what the next question is? Where does he go to church? Anybody have this conversation? Oh, um, well, he doesn't go to church right now, but I know he reads his Bible every single day. Young ladies. Those of you who have young ladies in your lives, caution that young girl that she needs to wait until that young man, if he truly is a Christian, has put himself under the submission of a church and has joined himself to a body. Because while we cannot say that the person's not at a church, they're absolutely not saved, they certainly are functioning in a way that the New Testament has no language for speaking about that person who is living the Christian life, not in union with a local church body. Thankfully, we don't have time for questions. So <laughs> Gracious Father, we pray that you be with us this night. 
I pray that you would strengthen us and equip us as your church. I pray that you would use us in one another's lives to continue to sanctify us, that we would be grateful for the ongoing and ordinary means of grace that you use in our lives, and that we would not see being part of your church as a begrudging task or uh, something that is tiresome, but that we would find joy in our fellowship with one another, that we would find strength in being a part of your body, and that we would uh, celebrate the salvation that we have in Christ, uh, which is the thing that we share in common and which unites us together as one body. Now we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.